0: Let us pray. O Jesus, eternal King, you have fulfilled all that has been promised. Thank you for your redeeming life. In the darkness of our sin, we are afraid and seek to make ourselves secure against your salvation. Let us see how even our sorrows are redeemed and sanctified by you. In your name, amen. Dear fellow redeemed, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning, the gospel appointed for the second Sunday after Christmas, is from the gospel according to St. Matthew, the second chapter, beginning with the 13th verse. Please rise in Jesus' name. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, because Herod will search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he was furious. He issued orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding countryside from two years old and under. This was in keeping with the exact time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, The angel said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to kill the child are dead. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, had succeeded his father as ruler in Judea, he was afraid to go there. Since he had been warned in a dream, he went to the region of Galilee. When he arrived there, he settled in a city called Nazareth. So what was spoken through the prophets was fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. We will hear on Thursday about the visit of these wise men, the festival of Epiphany. But still now we're in the midst of these 12 days of Christmas. Christmas, remember, is the festival of the nativity of our Lord when Jesus became incarnate, became a human being. The Son of God took up our flesh to fulfill God's promises throughout the scriptures, to bear our sins and to bring us his life. Such a powerful event, this Christ event. It was bound to cause some reactions. On Christmas Day, we heard the reaction of some poor shepherds out in a field. Now we hear the reaction of a great king in his palace and the chain reactions into the town of Bethlehem. This child is proving to be a significant person. This child fulfills our hopes and fears, especially as we understand that he is the eternal king and as we see how he redeems and sanctifies our sorrow. There are two kings in this gospel. Forget those wise men for now, they weren't even kings anyway. There are two kings that were shown here in this gospel. The first is obviously a king. He lived in a palace, he dressed in fine clothes, he commanded an army. It's funny though, because Herod was a figurehead king. He did have some power, but he was a puppet of the Roman Empire. His power was a slavish power. The second king in this account is less obviously a king. A small boy, two years old or younger, living in a simple house with his mother and father. He had no attractiveness and no majesty. But this is the eternal king, and his power is the almighty power of God. Pitiful is the powerless earthly tyrant who wages war against infants. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he was furious. He issued orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding countryside from two years old and under. The Festival of the Holy Innocents is one of the three festivals immediately after Christmas. December 28th, the fourth day of Christmas, is their day commemorating those infants who were martyrs of Jesus, not in will. But indeed, a short choral piece by Jacob Handel called Dicunt Infantes tells of their martyrdom and also of their victory. The martyred infants praise the Lord, babes by Herod cruelly killed. In death they witness without word, living they were too soon stilled. The blood of those first martyrs cries, they whose tongues were quieted. They talk with God, home in the skies, now in words unlimited. So while the mad tyrant rages impotently, those most vulnerable are most victorious. And all of this is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Three quotations are given in these 11 verses. At the end, we hear that what was spoken through the prophets was fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Nazareth was a lowly, despised place, a backwater place. And we've seen already one prophecy which told of the Messiah, the eternal king, and how he would not have any obvious cause for men to be attracted to him. For Isaiah said, when we saw him, nothing about his appearance made us desire him. So there is the fulfillment. There's also the prophecy of Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was buried in Ramah on the other side of Jerusalem from Bethlehem. Jeremiah told how Israel was taken captive in Babylon, and Rachel was depicted as weeping for her children who were taken away from their homeland. Now, this fits into a category of prophecy we often see in Scripture known as telescopic prophecy. That is, this prophecy has its fulfillment in one event or person closer to the time the prophecy was given, and then a greater fulfillment in another event or person later on, telescoping outward. And that prophecy comes also with comfort because Jeremiah would go on, after that verse about Rachel weeping, and say, This is what the Lord says Stop your crying. Do not shed your tears, because your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own borders. And the hope that Rachel and God's people had was here. Now, in the second fulfillment, of jeremiah's telescopic prophecy fulfilled of rachel's weeping restoration a return from exile and bondage the inheritance of promise all came about in this child because he was the one about whom god told abraham all of the families of the earth will be blessed in you that offspring of abraham And not only the hopes of Abraham, but of all Israel and of all nations, all people who looked for the light of God to shine down, those hopes are fulfilled in this child. Out of Egypt I called my son is the prophecy. Those are the words of Hosea, who's telling the history of Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. You remember the story of the Exodus. How Moses came into Egypt and commanded Pharaoh to let his people go, and it wasn't until ten plagues afflicted the land that that wicked king's hard heart consented. The whole nation passed then on dry ground through the Red Sea, and there they were clearly marked as God's people. And maybe you can tell that here again we have another sort of telescopic prophecy. More specifically, this is called typology. The nation of Israel being called God's son and coming out of Egypt serves as a type or a foregoing picture of Christ. When Israel came through the Red Sea, that was their baptism by which God claimed them for himself, destroying in those same waters the ones who held, wanted to hold them captive. But Hosea in the next verse summarizes the darker part of Israel's history, The more I called to them, the more they went away from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Israel kept going back into the waters, swimming back again to slavery. And surely you can see in your own life how you've done the same thing. And if you can't see it, you should scrutinize your life more closely. Now, killing all these babies is obviously a sin, but did Herod see it that way? Herod framed this act as defending his reign. Why would soldiers go along with it and actually perform this act of slaughtering those infants? Certainly they justified it as defending the reign of the king and doing their duty. In Egypt itself, the same sort of thing occurred, as there Pharaoh ordered the death of all male children among the Israelites two years old and under. He justified it as protecting the peace of his kingdom. And the soldiers who carried out his orders surely justified it the same way. So what sins do you justify? Sometimes we justify our sins by saying that the action that we're doing performs a greater good than not doing that. As though we said, "Well, I know it's not the best thing to do, but wouldn't it be worse if I did nothing?" Sometimes we justify our sins by shutting shunting that responsibility off to someone else. Well, it's not my problem. Sometimes we justify our sin by minimizing that sin or maybe even claiming that the sin that we're doing is righteous and we ignore any clear word of god that tells us how it is sin it's not wrong prove it each sin we commit however is a return to the pharaoh of sin a return to bondage in the devil's kingdom but remember remember that you are baptized or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into christ were baptized into his death we were therefore buried with him by this baptism into his death so that just as he was raised from the dead through the glory of the father we too would also walk in a new life our passage through those waters the waters of baptism joins us to that king and therefore that king redeems us and sanctifies our sorrow if you were asked what Jesus did for you, you might answer, He died for my sins. And you're absolutely right. In Jesus' body, He bore your sin. He paid the price for your guilt, and your sin no longer clings to you. It died with Jesus. But He also did much more than that, as if that weren't enough. Isaiah prophesies, Surely He has borne our griefs. Look at that great burden carried by our Savior. The crossbeam that he would bear signifies how much weight laid on him. He carries our griefs. He carries our sorrows. He carries our transgressions. He carries our iniquities. He carries our guilt. He feels all of them. He sympathizes with all of them, but he also takes all of them away. This keys into an important fact. The end comes with Jesus. All of human history, since Eve assented to the temptations of the devil, has been fraught with sin and pain. Jesus brings an end to this sort of existence in sin and pain. An end to this sinful world, an end to any suffering that we face. This new creation that Jesus brings in is an existence described as that where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain because the former things have passed away. There is the hope that's offered to weeping Rachel. There is the hope that's offered to frightened Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt. And there is the hope offered to you. Think of that nation of Israel in Egypt once more. And there their existence was an existence in slavery, heavy bondage. Generations of Jacob's descendants knew nothing but suffering and labor and hardship. But the end of that was coming. And with that end would come about a new existence in the promise. A land flowing with milk and honey. Pharaoh prefigured Herod. In that time, he ordered all the male children born to the Israelites thrown into the Nile. But one child escaped. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a Levite woman as a wife. The woman became pregnant and bore a son. When she saw that he was a special child, she hid him for three months. When she was no longer able to hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She put the child into it, And placed it in the reeds along the bank of the Nile. This was Moses. And he was named Moses because Pharaoh's daughter later found him and drew him out of the water. Moshe sounds like drawn out of the water. And notice here the irony of Moses' story as a child. All the male children were to be thrown into the Nile. Moses was also thrown into the Nile but in such a way that he became the one by whom God saved all his people. Similarly, Herod ordered all the male children two years old and under killed. Jesus was one of those children, and while he didn't die at that time, he was killed in his own time. And his death came about in such a way that he was the one by whom God saved all people. Jesus redeemed and sanctified the blood of those children. Israel came out of Egypt as the children of God, as those who pursued them died. Similarly, God called his son Jesus out of Egypt when those who were trying to kill the child were dead. So Jesus redeemed and sanctified all God's people. This is why that child took up our flesh, to redeem it. He takes our flesh as his own along with everything that afflicts it. All our sins are his. All our sorrows are his. All our pains are his. Our death is his. And all of it is therefore sanctified. Sanctification means holiness. Only God is holy in himself. And everything that belongs to God is holy everything he marks as his own is holy and in jesus he has marked you everything you are as his you are holy notice what that mark is though it's the mark of the cross this sign is made over the head and over the heart of anyone who is baptized. That sign is made over you each divine service. Each service we pray, each time that blessing is offered. It's been said that the sign of the cross will mark Christ's church until the end. And you can see that cross each time you feel the nails of your own cross. The suffering that you bear. In the church the persecution like that afflicted by Herod or inflicted by any other worldly authority or any other attacker that is the sign of the cross on you again and again the point is this is Jesus suffering you will weep you will cry you will be in agony you will mourn like Rachel over Bethlehem's children but Jesus has borne your griefs and pains And he's also said, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. He is that comfort. Ever since his ascension after his death on the cross, purchasing your forgiveness and his resurrection from the dead to bring you to life, he has sent his comforter, the Holy Spirit, who brings Jesus to you. By the mighty word of God, by baptism's waters, and by the body and blood of Jesus who died and shed his blood, that Holy Spirit gives you, Jesus, your comfort, your life, and your joy. So we know what's coming. Jesus' life is repeated in the life of believers. The church greets those who are brought into her, even little children, by the sign of the cross in baptism. Suffering is in those children's future because of their connection to Christ. But redemption is also already theirs because of that very cross of Christ that marks them. There will always be those who seek the Christ child's life, the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh, ever seeking to destroy him from our hearts. But the fact is that Jesus has already won the victory. Hope and fear are united together in Jesus. He embodies what the worldly powers fear, what the devil has feared ever since God told him that the child of the woman would crush his head. But he's therefore also our hope because he brings us our eternal, unending life. This is the eternal king. By his kind and righteous rule, his forgiveness and grace given freely to you, He redeems and sanctifies all of your sorrow. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.